Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. The Venerable Yun Kuang once asked, Master, do you know where you will be reborn? Master Pui Hai replied, We have not died yet, so what is the use of discussing our rebirths? That which knows birth is the unborn. We cannot stray from birth to speak of the unborn. The patriarch once said, That which undergoes birth is really unborn. Birthday, everybody. Happy birthday. This is uh, Buddha's birthday, supposedly. Um, it really means it's your birthday, too. I say supposedly because um, most of the facts about the Buddha are. Um, a, a little uh, shaky, a little hidden in the mists of time, um, especially uh, exactly the day of his birth, um, which is not uncommon with uh, important uh, famous people in the past. They became really important only in retrospect, and so their, their death day is usually a lot better documented than their birthday. Um, and April 8th, or the beginning of April, is, is kind of a fortuitously chosen date um, because it's pretty close to the beginning of springtime, um, similar to uh, the resurrection of Jesus, which was uh, also around the beginning of springtime. And really, they're, they're similar kinds of uh, stories. Um, one, you might say, is about death and one is about uh, birth, but really um, the birth of Jesus was never considered particularly important. Um, it had its, its uh, depiction in the, the Gospels, but um, and that was more just to show that it was an auspicious occasion. Um, it's really the death and resurrection which matters in in Christianity, and the resurrection in particular, um, the coming back to life. And in Buddhism, the coming back to life is the rebirth. Um, So this was Buddha's final rebirth, unlike in Christianity where when you die you are then 
joining the afterlife in heaven or resurrected as as Jesus was um, in Buddhism the point is to end the entire cycle to not come back the cessation is the point um, the idea being that after being reborn billions of times you've pretty much experienced every form of suffering that you could possibly imagine and you've had enough of it and it's a good time to stop stopping is what it's all about there are some other similarities uh, the birth of Buddha and the birth of Jesus both um, have some mythological uh, stories attached to them Jesus of course being uh, born of a virgin and Buddha they don't talk too much about how exactly uh, the insemination happened um, although I imagine if you go deeply enough into the myths they probably do um, but the birth itself is a kind of miraculous birth the uh, story is that Buddha's mother was walking in the garden and raised her arm to I don't remember if it was to pick a flower or to pick a persimmon or something and she, as she raised her arm Buddha was born from her armpit so again it's uh, all kinds of marvelous cultural mythologies um, the, the mythologies are, are very important uh, culturally speaking but not so important in terms of um, spiritual practice but the idea of, of birth and death the concepts of birth and death those are, are very important the idea of rebirth in Buddhism is a it's sort of taken as a um, as a given uh, in Buddhist cultures that rebirth occurs how many people here believe in rebirth that, that it's a real phenomenon okay how many people sort of believe in it like, maybe yes maybe no and how, how many people are like uh, on the other side of the fence eh, maybe but I doubt it given any one of those camps so, <laughs> so you're, you're good company um, but it was it was basically it was it was just it was a, a, an assumption that was not commonly challenged in the days of the Buddha um, the Buddha came from a Hindu background and the Hindus of course have a very strong sense of rebirth as many cultures did and still do Buddha was um, a contemporary of um, as far as we can tell because his dates are a little shaky 
um, was a contemporary of Socrates, um, both uh, having lived about 2,500 years ago, and also a contemporary of Confucius. And Socrates, as, uh, as related to us by Plato, was always one of my favorite philosophers, uh, especially when I was young. It was uh, somebody that I read quite a bit when I was young. And um, I was uh, supposed to be here a couple of months ago uh, on Buddha's Parinirvana Day. And so I had, had done a lot of uh, reading about about death because uh, the Parinirvana, of course, is Buddha's death day, the day that he entered his final nirvana. And uh, one of the things that I was reading about in um, terms of death and rebirth was uh, Socrates. Uh, uh, there are a number of dialogues that Plato relates regarding Socrates' death and why he was put to death and what his opinion was. And since here we're talking about rebirth and I didn't have a chance to talk to you about about um, death and uh, parinirvana. I thought I'd just give you a few quotes from Socrates. Socrates was, uh, if you know anything about Socrates, you probably know that his death was um, by uh, execution. He was given poison. The wise citizens of Athens decided that he was a menace to the population um, because his philosophy was not sufficiently um, in line with their own thinkings regarding the gods. Um, in fact, it probably was brought about because Socrates went around pissing people off. He, uh, there was a, a famous oracle. Um, the, the Greeks had a very strong tradition of oracles uh, telling uh, the truth. And one of the oracles uh, said that Socrates was the wisest man in Athens. And so Socrates, knowing that he was not a wise man, uh, went about questioning the leading lights of Athens to delve into the depths and nature of their wisdom. And what he found was that they were certainly no more wise than he was, except that they were deluded into thinking that they were wise. And so in their delusion, uh, he was wiser than they were because he had no delusions about his own wisdom. He knew exactly the limits of his knowledge. He knew exactly what the mind of not knowing is. He had no ideas about 
having some fixed set of facts that he could point to and say, this is wisdom. But everybody that he ran into seemed very eager to say exactly how and in what way they were wise. And so Socrates realized that uh, although he himself was not wise, he was the wisest man in Athens. This didn't sit well with the authorities. And so the authorities decided that he was stirring up trouble and condemned him to death. And he spent, he spent his uh, final hours with his uh, friends and students and disciples um, who were trying to convince him that if he simply ran away, that nobody would think the worse of him that he really didn't have to die. But um, Socrates thought this was the silliest thing he'd ever heard, that he said, those who happen to have gotten in touch with philosophy in the right way devote themselves to nothing else but dying and being dead. That, I think, has quite a ring of Zen to it. How many people have heard of the Great Death? The Great Death. The Great Death is just exactly what we're approaching in Zen practice. Oh, you could say, in those who have devoted themselves to Zen practice in the right way devote themselves to nothing else but dying. Buddha's Parinirvana was the culmination of devoting himself to nothing else but dying and being dead. of not returning, of not wanting to hold on to anything. He also said to his friends, the hour of departure has arrived and we go our ways. I to die and you to live. Which is better, God only knows. Another thing that he said was, when you see a man repining at the approach of death, is not his reluctance a sufficient proof that he is not a lover of wisdom, but a lover of the body, and probably at the same time a lover of either money or power or both? That's Socrates on, on death. And what does that have to do with birth? 
you begin with the premise that we are here to live our lives, to die, and to be reborn. Of course, it has everything to do with birth. What comes after death is birth. And you don't have to believe in reincarnation to follow that logic. Every single moment you're dying, and that's not a that's not a philosophical metaphysical statement. That's simply a statement of fact. Every moment, the cells in your body, a specific number of them, are dying. The thoughts in your brain are flashing out. They're not there any longer. Your sensory impressions are changing. So this thing that you call yourself one minute is not the thing that you are the following minute. You have in clear ways died. And the world that you thought you were inhabiting has died right along with you. And although this is happening every single moment, really we only have a good sense of it if we look back over time because our appreciation is kind of crude. So imagine the person you were when you were five years old. Where is that person today? Where is that body today? Back there. You mean Garden Center? Buried under the gravel. Is <laughs> <laughs> a closet. <laughs> you know, not only is every cell that was in your body when you were five year old, five years old, no longer here, but your way of thinking. You can't even, even if you tried you couldn't put yourself in the mind of that five-year-old. You couldn't see the world the way that five-year-old saw the world. It's just not possible. You couldn't have the same feelings that five-year-old had. You couldn't have the same relationships that five-year-old had. Ten or twenty years from now, if you're lucky enough to be alive, the person you are right now will be as dead to you as that five-year-old is dead to you right now. And some people pride themselves on being consistent, believing the same thing when they're twenty that they believed when they were 10 or 5. 
And of course, that's nonsense. Or believing the same thing when they're 40 that they believed when they were 20. And that's also nonsense. And yet we think for some reason that tomorrow or next week or next year, we're still going to be alive. We're going to be consistent. We're going to have the same ideas about things. We're going to have the same feelings about things. We're going to be ourselves. And that's just nonsense. Or at least I hope it's nonsense. So, Master Wee Hai. How many people here have ever heard of Master Wee Hai? Anyone? Okay. Yeah, he's not particularly well known. Um, if you look him up uh, on Google, um, you're likely to encounter Master Wei Hai, who that's the Chinese name for Yakujo. Uh, because the names are very similar uh, in uh, anglicized spelling and sound, um, and Master Yakujo is very well known, um, you're likely to encounter his name rather than Weihai. Weihai was, and just to make it more confusing, Weihai was actually a contemporary of Weihai, Yakujo, and they studied with the same teacher. Um, the teacher was Basso. Uh, people who are familiar with our lineage know Yakujo was the Dharma father of Obaku, who was the Dharma father of Rinzai, who was the head honcho that gave our lineage its name. And Yakujo was a student of Basso, Basso, who, or in Chinese, Matsu, who was one of the great Zen teachers of all time and produced many, many uh, heirs, Dharma heirs. Weihai is on the opposite spectrum. Weihai produced no Dharma heirs which is probably why we haven't heard of him. And we owe what little we know to this book, the Zen teaching of instantaneous awakening. And we owe that to the uh, English translator, John Blofeld, who was uh, studying in China and just fortuitously happened to run into um, this text.
and translated it into English. His teaching is very reminiscent of Yakujo, very similar, uh, and very similar to Obaku. Unlike the koan method that is found in Rinzai, this teaching consists almost entirely of um, two parts of the text, one in which he expounds his thoughts on instantaneous awakening, and the other half is dialogues, um, recorded dialogues between him and other teachers or participant practitioners uh, in his day. And I've taken today's text from that dialogue. The Venerable Yun Kuang. And we don't get any information about Yun Kuang, exactly who Yun Kuang was or why he was asking Master Hui Wei these questions. But it says the Venerable Yun Kuang once asked, Master, do you know where you will be reborn? There was an assumption, and to some extent there still is, um, although it's probably less pronounced now than in the good old days, that um, people who uh, were Zen masters had certain powers. And it's said that sometimes they did. And those powers might include things like uh, being able to recall all of their rebirths for 500 years or 5,000 years or, or all of their rebirths. And it was said, of course, of Buddha that he could recall every one of his God knows how many rebirths. Um, the assumption is that, that you are reborn an infinite number of times. Um, so if you can recall all of your rebirths, you're essentially recalling um, the infinite past. It was also said that they could um, see their rebirth and predict where and when they would be reborn. You know, whether, whether these things ever actually occurred, I have no idea. But there was certainly a belief that if you were a big shot Zen master, you should have supernatural powers that you should be able to see things like the far past and the uh, distant future. Personally, I'm happy if I can remember what I had for breakfast. <laughs> and I, if I can recall what I had for breakfast yesterday, I consider that a supernatural power. <laughs> so, he asked the uh, Master Wei, uh, "Can you, do you know where you will be reborn?" And the Master answered, "We have not died yet. So what's the use of discussing our rebirths?" 
That which knows birth is the unborn. We cannot stray from birth to speak of the unborn. The patriarch once said, that which undergoes birth is really unborn. That's a very, very pregnant phrase, unborn. I don't mean to make a pun out of that. Unborn, you know, that's, it's a word which uh, has uh, gotten political connotations with abortion and anti-abortion people and all of that. But he's not talking about that. He's not talking about the fetus in the womb. He's talking about emptiness. The unborn is the uncreated. The unborn is also the undying. It is the potential, the potential which exists right here, right now, for each and every one of us. The absolute condition in which we experience nirvana, which is exactly the same state of being that we muddle through from day to day thinking that this is all there is. The unborn is what is born when you die from moment to moment and which is constantly being born and which will continue to be born long after you're dead and long after the molecules that you presently inhabit have taken on some other form, perhaps fertilizing a tree, when the air that you're breathing is being breathed by some other person a century from now. It's going to be the same unborn. And I think what he's saying in this passage is, who really gives a damn about rebirth? You know, who cares where you're going to be born again, if you're going to be born again? You're being born again right now. You're dying right now, and you're being born right now. Your mind is turning over. Your body is turning over perhaps on a cellular level. But honestly, the cellular level is all there is. I mean, you may think that this, this sack of shit that's sitting here has some great importance, but it doesn't. The unborn, that has great importance. 
The unborn is going to be there forever, has been there forever. We're just going along for the ride and hopefully opening ourselves to it along the way. The unborn has infinite potential. The unborn is the reason why you can be trained, why you can train your heart, you can train your mind, you can train your habits, you can train your character. All of these things are possible because of the unborn. If you had this mythical consistency of being the person you are today, tomorrow, and next year, and the year after, and the year after that, then you couldn't train a thing. There'd be no point in Zen training. You'd be the same hopeless thing that you are right now. But that's not true. Your body is constantly changing. Your mind is constantly changing. It used to be thought that neurons were a constant uh, thing in the brain that you had a certain number of neurons, they had certain connections, and you couldn't really do much about it. And recently, neuroscientists have discovered that's not true. There is turnover amongst neurons. There are constantly new connections being forged in the brain, constantly. And you can affect the connections that are made. You can affect them through meditation. You can affect them through uh, uh, spiritual practices of compassion and uh, loving kindness and, and, uh, and knowing emptiness. You can form new connections. You can, you can train new areas of your brain. You can make portions of your brain which are necessary for um, compassion, for love. You can actually have those areas grow. It's been documented. Your brain is not, not fixed, nor is your body, nor are your thoughts, nor are your emotions. These things can be trained. That's what we're doing here. You are, in fact, unborn. You are, in fact, being born every single moment. 
and dying every single moment. You can't change that fact, but you can change the direction in which you're being born. traditional Buddhist belief, the um, importance of, of training and of behavior, practicing paramitras and such, um, one of the things that you were trying to affect would be the ways in which you would be reborn in your next lifetime. Now, if you don't believe in a next lifetime, that's okay. But it's important at the very least that you believe that you're being reborn during this lifetime. Uh, I know personally that the person that I am now is radically different from the person that I was 20 years ago. And I assume the same for all of you. Now you may have some misconception about who you are. And you may think that you're much more persistent in your character, in your beliefs, in this idea of me. You may have some delusion about this me being a persistent entity. And I would submit to you that the only thing that is actually persistent are relationships that you have and some memories which may or may not be accurate memories. They may be largely inventions that you've distilled over the years so that you remember yourself as a 20-year-old, as a 30-year-old, as a 40-year-old, as a 50-year-old, depending on how old you are. And you may have very clear ideas of who what, and where you were. They may be completely false. They may be completely groundless. And yet you will defend that memory with all of your strength. And I hope you realize you don't have to do that. You really don't. 
you don't have to defend what, whatever you were last week or last year or 10 years ago. If you were an asshole, okay, so you were an asshole. If you were a shining star, great. Nobody gives a shit. <laughs> the important thing is who are you now? This minute, right now. And what are you doing to influence the direction of the rest of your life? What are you doing to influence the direction of the lives of the people around you? Of the people for whom you care? And even for the people that you don't care about? You may think that the people that you don't care about really are not very important, but they are. What are you doing for them? Dogen said, and this is a quote of his which in many sotos and temples is chanted every day, usually in the evening before, after evening zazen and before retiring. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time swiftly passes and opportunity is lost. Each of us should strive to awaken. Awaken. Take heed. Do not squander your life. Life and death are of supreme importance. And they're going on right now. You have only one moment in which to awaken. And that moment is right now. Consider yourself unborn. and you are in the process of giving birth. That's what you're doing here. You know, if you, if you are honest with yourself, the only point of being here is to awaken. And there's nothing that you're awakening to accept this process of dying and being reborn. Moment by moment, dying and being reborn. Nothing to hold on to. Nothing to gain. Nothing to gain but wakening, 
of being alive, being real, being honest. There are only a few things that we need to keep in mind in Zen practice. Zen training. And honestly, even if you were to leave the Zendo after this all-day sit and never to come back and never practiced Zen in a formal setting again. These same principles would still be the principles that you would have to hold in your mind if you have any chance of living an honest and happy life. And the first principle is that you have a rare opportunity. You're alive. You're a human being. Being a human being is a very rare occurrence. For those of you who don't think that you're going to be reborn, this is your one shot. Your only chance. Your only chance to be alive and to look around and to love and to understand and to feel and to be alive is right now. And if you don't appreciate that, the rare opportunity that you have, and you're a fool. The second principle is that you're going to die. And not only you're going to die, but everybody that you know, everybody that you love is going to die. And you have no idea when that's going to happen. It could be that you are much closer to the end than you are to the beginning of your life. I suspect that for many of us here that's true. It could be that we're all going to die tomorrow. With the maniac in the White House, I wouldn't put it past, <laughs> you know, it's possible. 
It could be that you're going to have a slow and painful and awful death. It could be that you're going to have a very quick and merciful and happy death. All of these things are possible, but the only thing which is absolutely certain is that you're going to die. Absolutely certain. And that's a really important thing to understand and to prepare for. What would you think if you were to die now? Are you ready? Can you say that you've had a good life? Can you say that you've been the person that you wanted to be? And if not, why not? And if not, what do you have to change? Remember, you're dying and being reborn all the time. You have the opportunity. You are unborn. You have the opportunity now to become the person that you want to be. So that when death comes for you, you're not left with regrets. The other thing to keep in mind is the incredible and indelible power of our actions and intentions. This is what we call karma, which also we are creating moment by moment. And the person that you are going to be, assuming that you are alive 10 years from now or five years from now, is going to be the person that you have created through your actions and your intentions. And if there's another lifetime, the person that you are in the next lifetime will certainly be the fruit of your actions and intentions in this lifetime. But whether you believe in another lifetime or not, the person you're going to be tomorrow, next week, next year, 10 years from now, you're creating that person right now. You're creating that person like a potter creates a vessel. And you can either bring awareness and intention to that shaping, or you can just let it go and hope for the best. And the 
final thing the final thing to keep in mind both for yourself and for all the people around you is the inevitability of suffering and it goes along with everything that we've been saying Buddha had his parinirvana, which was the cessation of suffering. But I wouldn't count on being so lucky. There is a path to the cessation of suffering. And whether that path is followed for a day, a week, a month, a year, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, or lifetime after lifetime, the pathway will smooth the edges away from suffering. It will allow you to see your suffering in some other way as clay which you are shaping. The suffering that you are undergoing is the raw material of your life, the raw material of your character, of your spirit, of your aspirations. Whether we're talking about physical pain, mental pain, emotional pain, this raw material can be turned to your awakening. In fact, it's the only thing that can be turned towards your awakening. It's the only thing that you can rely on. There's a um, one of the slogans in Tibetan Lojang, Training and Compassion, is three objects, three poisons, three seeds of awakening. The three objects are the feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. The three poisons are greed, which is our reaction to what's pleasant, aversion or anger or fear, which is our reaction to what's unpleasant, and delusion, which is our reaction to what doesn't register as pleasant or unpleasant. In this sense, it's tuning out fantasizing, 
because it's better than what, what isn't stimulated. So you've got three objects, three poisons, but those poisons are exactly the raw material from which you can awaken. They are the seeds of your awakening. To use them as seeds of awakening, first of all, you have to be awake, which means you have to allow yourself to feel. When there is greed within you, you have to be honest and see that there's greed in you. When there's anger in you, you have to be honest and see that there's anger. When there's fear, when there's anxiety. Also when there's love and when there's compassion. Come to know yourself. Come to know what's going on in your body and in your mind. What does it feel like to be afraid? What does it feel like to be anxious? Where do you feel it? How do you feel it? How do you manifest it? What does it feel like to be confused? To be up in the air? To be uncertain? Allow yourself to feel these things. Allow yourself to know these things. Only by knowing these things that you can possibly awaken. It's only by knowing these things that you can possibly stop having power over you. When you're sitting with pain, what do you do about it? Whether the pain is in your hip or in your heart, in your soul, in your brain. What do you do about it? What does it feel like to be overbrimming with love? To be overbrimming with joy? To be at peace? What does it feel like? You have to know these things. You have to experience them. And you have to experience the opposite. You know, the unborn, we're like babies that are palpating blindly. We don't have a clear sense of right and wrong of what's good and what's bad. Poison or seed of awakening. What, which is it? And how do you know? And how do you turn one into the other? This is our practice. This is all of our practice.
the unborn. The unborn means that you can change, that in fact you are changing whether you want to or not. You are dying in this very moment whether you like it or not. But that's a good thing because that means that you're also being reborn in this moment. And your actions and your intentions shape the direction of this rebirth. So this question, this question of, do you know where you will be reborn? It's really a very profound question. That which knows birth is the unborn. And that is where we are today. Get to know this unborn. Get to know shunyata. Get to know emptiness. This blank slate. This blank slate that you have that we all have. Understanding that shunyata is not different from form from the five skandhas. Understanding that nirvana is not different from samsara. Use your time wisely. Slogan said, life and death are of supreme importance. Time swiftly passes and opportunity is lost. Do your best. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org slash donate. Thank you for listening.